Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Section 19 of Canadian Scenery, Volume 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Canadian Scenery, Volume 1, by Nathaniel Parker Willis. The Bishop of Canada preached at the church I attended on Sunday, and, as I was returning home, a veteran soldier of General Wolfe's army was pointed out, in his scarlet uniform. I have had a few rides into the country in the neighborhood, which is very beautiful. I have also met most of the principal merchants at dinner during my stay. On these occasions I am always gratified by the allusions I continually hear to home. At home we do so-and-so. Mr. Blank's carriage has just arrived from home. Here are some biscuits from home, fresh from Threadneedle Street, where I always get them. In the streets, however, there were many peculiarities to remind us that we were not at home. More than three-fourths of the inhabitants are said to be Catholics, and the bells of the cathedral are never at rest. The priests, who are the seigneurs of the island, are very rich but they are said to be charitable, moral, and by no means luxurious. Our young friends would be amused by the numerous dog carts, the dogs in gig or tandem harness, in every part of the town, and by the caleches of the last century, which would serve as a foil for a north of England Shandon. A considerable number of Indians are usually walking the streets with moccasins for sale, and I saw several on the riverside, a mile distant, in wigwams, of which their birch canoe formed a principal part. The town is most agreeably situated, and there is an air of industry and animation in the inhabitants, and yet, occasionally, the narrow streets and ironed window shutters excite a sensation of gloominess, of which I cannot readily divest myself till I return to our cheerful inn, where the arrival and departure of steamboats occasion a constant succession of guests. Our party at table, which dwindled to six, rose, two days since, suddenly to sixty, all fugitives, all those who are not on business seldom allot above two days to this part of their tour, as the friends with whom I am most intimate have been detained since their return from Quebec, by want of a steamboat, I have been very well off, having access to their three drawing-rooms, with an agreeable female party in each. Our host, although a Londoner, and adopting London hours, accommodates himself by pursuing the American plan of compelling us to eat at a common table, but the style of the house is admirable, and we can obtain private sitting-rooms. One of those occupied by our party is that which Lord Selkirk usually occupied while here, and often recalls him to my recollection. All I hear, and I have conversed with many both parties on the subject, has only served to confirm my previous impressions with respect to the treatment which he received, in some instances too, in quarters where it was least excusable, and at the hands of those from whom every British subject was entitled to demand impartiality. In an hour we are going to board the Swiftshire steamboat for Quebec and I am glad to find that several of my acquaintances will be of the party. Steamboat, on the St. Lawrence, August 28, 1820. 
I began this letter at Montreal on board the Swiftshore steamboat. This is probably the finest steamboat which has been built, and I was proud to see her under the British flag. The Americans readily conceded her superior claims. The style of living in attendance is more like that of a good hotel at the west end of London than anything I have seen on this side of the Atlantic, notwithstanding the handsome style of some of the American hotels and the comfort of some of the boarding houses. There is an ice house on board, and the owner supplies her table with grapes and peaches from his own garden. I often feel a strange sensation when gliding down the American rivers in these floating palaces, and have sometimes turned away almost ashamed when bearing down in all this ostentatious luxury on the poor half-naked Indians in their birch canoes, struggling to reach the shores on which their fathers roamed fearless and independent. We left Montreal about noon on the 22nd, and for 60 miles averaged 13 miles an hour. The banks of the river, which is from one and a half to three miles broad, though too flat to be romantic, till you approach within thirty miles of Quebec, are interesting, from the white cottages which seem to form one continued village, and the neat churches, of which two or three are often in sight at once. The spires are usually covered with tin, and have a very dazzling appearance. The cottages have originally been placed at equal distances from each other, the farms having been laid off with a front of a given length to the river, but the Canadian custom of dividing the farm between the children of the deceased, more congenial with their indolence than striking deeper into the woods, has broken uniformity by repeated and often inconvenient subdivisions. A mass of deep woods usually bounds the farms, at the distance of a few acres from the river. The navigation on Lake St. Peter is so difficult that we were obliged to lie at anchor all night. On the 23rd, we passed the Three Rivers, a handsome town, on the three mouths of a respectable river, and at five o'clock in the evening arrived at Quebec, a hundred eighty miles from Montreal. As we approached the town we passed close under the plains of Abraham, and the precipitous rocks which our gallant hero scaled, and after straining our eyes to reach the fortifications, which seemed to frown destruction to any hostile force which might have the temerity to approach, we were pleased, on looking round us, to find ourselves in the middle of British shipping. I cannot tell you with what satisfaction I renewed my acquaintance with old Cumberland Briggs, which in England I should not condescend to notice. As soon as we landed, an English friend and I procured a calèche, and drove off to the falls of Montmorency, nine miles distant, which we reached just at sunset. Our beautiful summer evening closed in upon us before we had seen the falls for the most favorable situation. The full moon, however, soon rose, and threw her light upon the broken torrent, which precipitates itself from a height of 220 feet, while the dark shadow of the rocks and trees, which overhang the waters below, contributed greatly to heighten the grandeur of the scene. Our conductor was an interesting little peasant girl, nine years of age, whose pretty French was most agreeable. The ride home was delightful, the full moon walking in brightness, and throwing her horizontal rays across the river as she rose. The fortresses of Quebec were constantly in sight, and did, indeed, seem impregnable by human force. It would be difficult even to imagine a more commanding sight, and I could not help admiring the skill with which the French had chosen their northern post, which they evidently intended to connect with New Orleans by a series of intermediate forts which might confine the British within a narrow strip of the Atlantic. Reflections on their system of policy were the most interesting to me, from having so lately visited the southern extremity of their transatlantic dominions, and having in the interval passed through so many of the immense forests which lie between them. We stopped at Malrots, the best inn in Quebec, but an unwillingness to intrude on the present occupiers of my bed decided me to prefer a chair, in which I sat till after three o'clock, looking on the beautiful moonlight prospect before me. At five o'clock we set out in a calèche on our way to Loretto, an Indian village of the Hurons, nine miles from Quebec. They have a neat Catholic church and speak French, 
but from what I could gather from the chief, they have no land and support themselves by fishing and hunting. In that case, they are not so well off as my friends the Choctaws and Cherokees or the Chanawagas, whom we saw nine miles from Montreal, who have a handsome Catholic church and cultivate the land. In the course of our ride, we were often reminded of home by the little rich meadows and thick settled country on every side. The distant mountains were very fine. We reached our inn at nine o'clock, having accomplished after six o'clock the preceding night what usually occupies two days. After breakfast, I devoted myself to business and, declining an invitation from Judge to accompany him to the military mess to dinner, I set off to the falls of Chaudière, seven miles distant, intending to drink tea on our return with a gentleman who lives on the way. It was so dark, however, when we reached his house, five or six miles from Quebec, and had begun to rain so heavily that we thankfully accepted his offer of a bed. The falls of the Chaudière were highly interesting, even after Niagara. In the deep seclusion of a thick wood, the river, nearly 250 yards wide, precipitates itself a hundred feet into a rocky channel, which appears to have been rent asunder by some dreadful convulsion of nature, by which the rock has been broken into huge masses that combine with the surrounding objects to impart an air of the most magnificent wildness to this extraordinary scene. On our return, we had several fine views of Quebec down the river. The next day we went into town early, and I was again engaged in business till afternoon, when I walked round the fortifications with my old military friend and his wife. At five o'clock I went to dine at Judge's, where I met several gentlemen, and where I stayed till it was nearly time to embark in the steamboat, which was set to sail at midnight for Montreal. I think you will be amused by the following extract from the journal of one of my fellow travelers, who left me at Montreal to visit Quebec, and on his return found on board the steamboat one of the Indian chiefs, belonging to the village of Loretto, to which I have alluded. We have on board one of the Indian chiefs who walked in the procession at Loretto, and his daughter, a genteel young woman. He speaks the English language. He said he knew General Washington and had dined with him twice and that the general had made him a present of a very good horse. I told General Washington, he said, that your horse? He tell me to call one of his aides, and he say, Colonel Trumbull, write order for Vincent, not my name, for that horse. So I keep him, he very good horse. The story of the horse was thus explained. Vincent commanded a body of Indians at the capture of Burgoyne, and was made a prisoner with that general. The horse had been taken by him from the Americans, and hence he called him not his own, but Washington's. This information I obtained from others on board. Taking me aside, he said, I saw you, Loretto. C. I was there and saw you walking at the head of the procession. V. Yes, I walk. C. What was that the priest carried? V. What religion you? C. I'm a Protestant. V. Then you very good man. Priest carry image Virgin Mary. This is all nonsense. He tell us poor Indians we must believe or be condemned. That Virgin Mary was taken up into heaven, soul and body. You believe that? C. I do not understand it. What is your opinion? V. I do not believe. I do not read that in scripture. Priests tell us poor ignorant Indians that we must worship her, and saints, and images. I do not find it in scripture neither. But I read, Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and him only shalt thou worship. Thou shalt make no graven image, no worship them. That my belief. I think it wicked to worship images, but God is merciful. Priests tell us ignorant Indians we must have mass, fetched out purgatory our fathers, dead hundred years ago, and we pay sometimes one, sometimes two dollars each mass. Brother, you believe there is a purgatory? See, I have no knowledge of such a place. What is your opinion? V. 
I don't believe, and tell you my opinion, I believe if our heart be not purge in this life, it will never purge. On my assenting to his doctrine, he asked, Where do you think is hell? I told him I did not know. Then added he, I'll tell you where I think it is. It is in the sun. I felt some surprise at all this, and, asking him where he had been educated, he replied at Hampshire. He then asked me to drink a glass of grog, and on my declining, he bid me good-bye, and walked to the forecastle to sip it by himself. On observing a young Indian on board very attentive to the chief's daughter, I told Vincent I supposed this man was courting her, on which he replied with much warmth, No, him Mohawk. I do not know why he regarded a connexion with the Mohawks as degrading, for they were members of the celebrated confederation of the Six Nations, the Iroquois Confederation. The other members were the Oneidas, the Onondagas, the Cayugas, the Senecas, and the Tuscaroras. It is our wish to assemble pictures of Canada by as many different classes of observers and during as many different seasons as is possible. Here are some winter sketches, which are not unentertaining. Nothing could be more Siberian than the aspect of the Canadian frontier. A narrow road, choked with snow, led them through a wood, in which patches were occasionally cleared on either side to emit the construction of a few log huts, round which a brood of ragged children, a starved pig, and a few half-broken rustic implements formed an accompaniment more suited to an Irish landscape than to the thriving scenes we had just quitted. The Canadian peasant is still the same unsophisticated animal whom we may suppose to have been imported by Jacques Cartier. The sharp, unchangeable lineaments of the French countenance, set off with a blue or red nightcap, over which is drawn the hood of a grey capote, fashioned like a monk's cowl, a red worsted girdle, hair tied in a greasy leather queue, brown moccasins of undressed hide, and a short pipe in his mouth, give undeniable testimony of the presence of Jean-Baptiste. His horse seems to have been equally solicitous to shame neither his progenitors nor his owner, by any mixture with a foreign race, but exhibits the same relationship to the horses as his rider to the subjects of Louis Thirteenth. Now, too, the frequent cross by the roadside, thick studded with all the implements of crucifixional torture, begin to indicate a Catholic country, Distorted virgins and ghastly saints decorate each in-room, while the light spires of the parish church, covered with plates of tin, glitter across the snowy plain. At La Prairie we cross the ice to Montreal, whose isolated mountain forms a conspicuous object at the distance of some leagues. From thence to Quebec, the road follows the course of the St. Lawrence, whose banks present a succession of villages, many of them delightfully situated, but all form and feature were absorbed in the snowy deluge, which now deepened every league. Add to which the sleigh track, by frequently running on the bed of the river, placed us below prospect of every kind. We found the inns neat, and the people attentive. French politesse began to contrast with American bluntness. It is curious to observe that this characteristic of the Americans, which so frequently offends the polished feelings of English travellers, is exactly what was formerly objected by the French to ourselves. The rudesse of the English character was long a standing jest with our refined neighbours, but we have now, it seems, so far shaken off this odious remnant of uncourtly habits as to regard it with true French horror in our transatlantic cousins. It was Sunday when we arrived at St. Anne's, Mass was just finished, and above a hundred sleighs were rapidly dispersing themselves up the neighboring heights and across the bed of the river to the adjacent villages. The common country sleigh is a clumsy box-shaped machine, raised at both ends, perhaps not greatly unlike the old heroic car. It holds two persons, with the driver who stands before them. One horse is commonly sufficient, but two are used in posting when the leader is attached by cords, tandem-wise, and left to use his own discretion without the restraint of rein or impulse of whip. 
Should, however, the latter stimulus become indispensable, the driver jumps from the sleigh, runs forward, applies his pack-thread lash, and regains his seat without any hazard from extraordinary increase of impetus. The runners of these sleighs are formed of two slips of wood, so low that the shafts collect the snow into a succession of wavy hillocks, properly christened cows, for they almost dislocate your limbs five thousand times in a day's journey. An attempt was once made to correct this evil by prohibiting all low runners, as they are called, from coming within a certain distance of Quebec, meaning thereby to force the country people into the use of high runners in the American fashion. Jean-Baptiste, however, sturdily and effectually resisted this heretical innovation by halting with his produce without the limits, and thus compelling the townsfolk to come to him to make their purchases. The markets, both of Montreal and Quebec, exhibit several hundred market sleighs daily. They differ from the pleasure or traveling sleigh in having so sides. That is, they consist merely of a plank bottom with a kind of railing. Hay and wood seem the staple commodities at this season, both of which are immoderately dear, especially at Quebec. Even though the states, the common charge for one horse's hay for a night was a dollar. Provisions are brought to market frozen, in which state they are preserved during the winter. Codfish is brought from Boston, a land carriage of 500 miles, and then sells at a reasonable rate, the American commonly speculating on a cargo of smuggled goods back to make up his profit, a kind of trade extremely brisk betwixt the frontier and Montreal. As we approached Quebec, snow lay to a depth of six feet. From the heights of Abraham, the eye rested upon what seemed an immense lake of milk. All smaller irregularities of ground, fences, boundaries, and copse woods had disappeared. The tops of villages and scattered farmhouses, with here and there dark lines of pine wood, and occasionally the mast of some ice-locked schooner marking the bed of the Charles River, were the only objects peering about it. A range of mountains, sweeping round from west to north until it meets the St. Lawrence, bounds the horizon. No herald of spring had yet approached this dreary outpost of civilization. We had observed a few blue thrushes in the neighborhood of Albany, but none had yet reached Canada. Two only of the feathered tribe braved the winter of this inclement region, the cosmopolite crow and the snowbird, a small white bird reported to feed upon snow because it is not very clear what else it can find. It would be acting unfairly to Quebec to describe it as I found it on my arrival, choked with ice and snow, which one day flooded the streets with a profusion of dirty kennels, and the next cased them with a sheet of glass. Cloth or carpet boots, galoshes, with spikes to their heels, iron-pointed walking sticks, are the defensive weapons perpetually in employ on these occasions. The direction of the streets, too, which are most of them built up a precipice, greatly facilitates any inclination one may entertain for tumbling or neck-breaking. The falls of Montmorency are formed by a little river of that name, near its junction with the St. Lawrence, about five miles north of Quebec. They have a peculiar interest in winter, from the immense cone of ice formed at their foot, which was unimpaired when I visited them, in the second week of April. After winding up a short but steep ascent, the road crosses a wooden bridge, beneath which the Montmorency rushes betwixt its dark grey rocks and precipitates itself in a broken torrent down the wooded glen on the right. It is not until you have wound round the edge of this glen, which is done by quitting the road at the bridge foot, that you obtain a view of the falls, nor was their effect lessened by this approach. A partial thaw, succeeded by a frost, had spread a silvery brightness over the waste of snow. Every twig and branch of the surrounding pine trees, every waving shrub and briar was encased in crystal and glittering to the sunbeams like the diamond forest of some northern elfland. You are now on the edge of a precipice, to which the fall itself, a perpendicular of 220 feet, seems diminutive. It is not until you descend and approach its foot that the whole majesty of the scene becomes apparent. The breadth of the torrent is about 50 feet. 
the waters from their prodigious descent seem snowy white with foam and enveloped in a light drapery of gauzy mist the cone appears about a hundred feet in height mathematically regular in shape with its base extending nearly all across the stream its sides are not so steep but that ladies have ascended to the top of it the interior is hollow i regret to add that a mill is constructing on this river which will by diverting the stream destroy this imperial sport of nature or at least reduce it to the degradation of submitting to be played off at the miller's discretion like a versailles fountain End of section 19.